Growing up in Northwest Washington in the 1980s and 1990s, in a medium-sized town with exceptional quality of life amenities, I heard a lot about how too many Californians were moving in, driving up real estate prices, and changing the cultural makeup of the place. In the years since, I've realized that this complaint against Californians, or the broader issues of gentrification and affordability in Western communities, was not unique to my hometown. In fact, it is widespread. Now, over the past four months, I've been traveling around the West doing archival research for my next book. And believe it or not, I heard near verbatim discourse about the scourge of incoming Californians in multiple locations. So very little has changed. With this in mind, I welcome you back to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. Today, we speak with sociologist Ryan Pilgrim about her new book, Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the U.S. West, published by the University of Washington Press in 2021. For new listeners, let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast. Each episode features a conversation with authors, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, academics, or others who write about the North American West. Our goal is not only showcase their work, but to spark curiosity among you, the listeners, to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the people who call it home. If a writer intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing the roles of host, producer, sound engineer, and just about everything else, all of which entail tasks for which I have very little training. But I am passionate about the North American West, and all the work is well worth the excuse to read more and to talk to interesting people. At the end of this episode, I will include some more information on me and my scholarship and on the Red Center, our programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. That's right, we may want to give you money. With all this business out of the way, let's move on to today's conversation. First, I'd like to introduce to you who it is we're talking to and why. Ryan Pilgrim is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Idaho. In her new book, Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the U.S. West, we learn about a region wherein many rural communities are suffering from widespread poverty and economic decline. But Pilgrim shows us that the reality on the ground is much more complicated than an overgeneralized decline of the rural West. Moreover, whatever decline there is maybe shouldn't surprise us. Historically, the development of remote Western lands by extractive industries was never intended to create long-term prosperity for local residents. Mining and lumber companies extracted resources, and the railroads not only transported the materials away, but also the lion's share of profits landed elsewhere. In recent years, the aesthetic qualities of many rural Western areas have made them the target for migration, both permanent and seasonal, by urban and suburbanites looking for something different. This amenity migration, as it's called, is bringing people to rural areas just as many of the industries that previously supported those communities are in decline. New affluent arrivals often have financial power to remake these communities into what they want, and often at odds with longtime residents. 
Pilgrim addresses these issues, but moves beyond just highlighting the incoming migrants or existing residents, as many other studies, both popular and academic, have. She examines the many entities that have facilitated these movements and developments, real estate developers, property managers, renters, boosters, and others. She also reveals how the original lumber mill and railroad-aided development of Dover, Idaho, and the gentrification for incoming affluent amenity-seeking migrants both serve outside interests, profits for investors, or the desired outcomes that outsiders project on the landscape. Both stages privileged outside interests, leaving the local community to deal with the booms and busts, the creations, destructions, and rebuildings of economies by capitalist systems. Pilgrim's portrait of Dover, Idaho, serves as a powerful lens through which we might interpret ongoing issues across the West, rural, suburban, and urban. The reach of gentrification, with all of its attendant positive and negative outcomes, and the unevenness of their impact, is more widespread than we usually acknowledge. If you live in the West, something related to all of this is happening in your proverbial backyard. Pilgrim trains us and our eyes to see it better. Hopefully this new site will help Westerners find ways to move forward with greater equity and stability across the region. Professor Ryan Pilgrim, welcome to Writing Westward. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited not only to resume the podcast, but to uh, talk about your book as kind of the first one as we get back into things. Tell us a little bit about Dover, Idaho, where it is and kind of its historic uh, origins. So Dover, Idaho is in northern Idaho, about oh, maybe 90 minutes from the Canadian border. And it's on Lake Ponderay, which is the largest lake in Idaho, 111 miles of shoreline. And it's a, a lot of people know Coeur d'Alene, so it's a little bit farther north than Coeur d'Alene on a different lake um, outside the town of Sandpoint. And so Dover is sort of a, in my opinion, sort of an interesting case study because it's a quintessential um, Western town in the sense that it was started um, in the early 1900s. It's a former, or it was a mill town. So there was a big sawmill there. Um, it's the traditional homelands of the Kalispell people who have lived, um, probably wintered in that spot for close to 10,000 years, archaeologists believe. Um, so it's this has been a place of human habitation for a long, long time. The railroads come through in the early 1900s. The sawmills are there. And it kind of becomes this quintessential Western town, not exactly a company town, but super close-knit, a lumber mill kind of closes and opens and has an interesting history. And then the mill, this is always one of the, I think, interesting facts for me as somebody who's interested in labor history, the mill unionizes in 1988 and then is closed six months later and uh, never reopens and then burns down in the mid 1990s. And that land through a series of pretty controversial moves was rezoned as a planned use development and an upscale development with 600 units was built in place of the mill. So there had been kind of this small grid town, um, super close knit. A lot of the people either worked in the mill or worked in industries that were supported by the mill. And they're still there in Dover. Um, many of them are in their late eighties now. And this development sort of comes in and the place where the development was built had a lot of plant or public spaces or what were considered public spaces. So in particular, a beach and a bluff, this beautiful like granite bluff that the community had used for the last hundred years um, with permission from the 
mill owners that then became sort of felt like private land pretty um, quickly. Yeah. I mean, so here we have kind of like the full narrative of so many small mm-hmm. Western towns, right? Tied mm-hmm. to a specific industry, boom bust cycles, um, problems of later problems of economic decline, and then uh, kind of this refashioning as um, a resort town, a tourist town, uh, a place where amenity seeking uh, migrants or, or tourists might come, right? And then mm-hmm this conflict between old and new residents. Uh, yeah. Um, you uh, moved there in high school. Yep. Um, where did you move from? I moved from Western Montana. So in a small town in Montana? Yeah, I had grown up on a cattle ranch in Montana, which we had lost during the farm crisis. And then um, I had lived in Missoula and Kalispell. So, so you, you knew small town kind of inland Northwest life. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm a fifth generation Montana on both sides. So I think this story felt very specific to place, but also very broad in the sense that I'd been watching communities change. Um, I think Missoula is a super interesting example. I moved to Missoula probably in 19, around 1990. Um, and so, you know, and grew up there with my mom ran a catering business. So watching Missoula change and yeah. So what was Dover like uh, when you were there for high school? So that what was, kind of, what was kind, of, kind of the moment in those during those four years? I mean, now I, looking back, you know the the history before and what's come since, which may color how you view those four years. Mm-hmm. But kind of in the moment, what was your experience growing up uh, in a in a small western town like Dover? Yeah, so I I mean I grew up uh, on the in the no man's land between Dover and Sandpoint on Chuck Slough, so it was kind so of you like weren't even I, in town. No, I mean, no, not really. I guess it like town enough. I was on a road that got plowed. So to me, that's town, you know, but um, yeah. So I moved to um, the Sandpoint Dover area in like 1995-ish, I think. And so the, I think the mill had probably recently burned down, but in my mind, it just wasn't there. Just huge piles of sawdust. And I had grown up in sort of a complicated, I have a complicated class history or background, I think. Um, And I, Sandpoint was, Dover just felt really comfortable to me. There were a lot of um, working class families that I rode the Dover school bus and a lot of those kids became pretty good friends um, through my time there. And so it just felt, I, we'd just gone through a huge transition in my family. My mom and sister and I had left my dad and brother. So we were pretty un, untethered. And so just felt very like welcomed in by a number of people in that community and really did and you- a lot of my growing up there. You felt better there than in Sandpoint? Yeah, I think Sandpoint. Because Sandpoint had already been somewhat more gentrified? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there was just, it was interesting at the time. I think this is what drew me to sociology. I'd wanted to be a chemist or a journalist in college. Um, And I think what drew me to sociology was, I mean, all sorts of analysis, but for me, it was really the class analysis. It was like my entire world was like finally made sense to me. And I do think that sort of, yeah, I think it was a lot about social class and my high school was super segregated by social class, but we never talk about, right? People had cliques, like the kids who had the boats and like were in the AP classes and the kids, the Hicks, right? Um, Who like drove the old trucks and stuff. And yeah, that was, I mean, I was experiencing like kind of this class placelessness and trying to find my people, but had no idea that that's what was happening. 
Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of us growing up, we were aware of like who the rich kids were and who was not, but we didn't really have the the vocabulary to talk about class. I I didn't I didn't understand it either in the terms that I do now, but looking back, it obviously was much more Im- impactful on our I think our lives than we than we realized at the time. I just knew I couldn't get like the new sneakers that I really wanted or something, uh, and you know the rich kids up the street could. But that's as far as my understanding of class went, I think. Yeah, I think for me, I was trying to figure out like, and this is what's interesting is, and I don't want to go too much into this, but that the people who I was taking classes with weren't the people that I was friends with and like trying to kind of circle that square. (laughs) I struggled with that for a long time. Hmm. So in the years since um, you made return visits um, to Dover, even, you know, as you moved away and went to school and whatnot. So how did those return visits start turning you towards the research that culminates in in Pushed Out? I was in graduate school when the development started taking shape and it became really public in the newspapers. And it was just shocking to me. And maybe it shouldn't have been, but it felt really shocking. I mean, when I left Sandpoint, it was pretty it was pretty economically depressed. And I don't know. I just didn't have that big picture. So I just thought, well, this is how it's going to be. So to kind of watch this fight and to realize that this place that I felt connected to was changing in this particular way was both kind of, I had an emotional reaction to it. And then also like, just was super curious about what was happening. Um, My mom's been in standpoint now for like 25 years. And so, you know, just, we'd go back and visit and go to some of the old places we would hang out and just watching it change. I thought it was fascinating. And I happened to be at a conference. Um, I can't remember. It was in Missoula. And my friend, Jen Sherman, who's also a rural sociologist, had asked me to open her, her presentation for her. I think like the Bill Lane Weston sound, sound familiar. Okay. So. No, yeah, Bill Lane so. Center's at Stanford. Yeah, but they did a conference in Missoula. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, they did a conference in Missoula. So Jen had asked me to come and introduce the panel. So I was like, okay, yeah, that'd be fun. It'd be fun to go to Missoula. So I went and introduced her panel for her. And the panel was on like rural homelessness and rural gentrification. More homelessness and gentrification, but it was just like I was sitting there. And my research has um, primarily been on women in agriculture. And I had written an article. I was like working on an article about um, gender and farming and gentrification and trying to like put these pieces together that were not quite coming together in my head and just sitting there. It was like, I finally know what's so interesting about Dover. Like I finally, like, it was like just in this moment, all these things clicked together and it didn't hurt that the conference was in Missoula, which is where I had, you know, spent about 10, well, 10 years of my life. And I worked on a tour train for another decade. So like 20 years I'd been going through Missoula and the conference big finale dinner was at the catering business my mom used to run. And so here I am like sitting in this seat Full where circle. I had been a server for my entire childhood. Um, and just like all these, and I had gone to a coffee shop that weekend and they had pan- my family's brand was painted on the wall. Um, like as a, I don't know really why they had a bunch of brands from the area painted on the wall. And it was like, we don't have a ranch anymore. And this coffee shop has our brand. And I'm sitting in this table where these people are serving me and I'm like being treated like an important guest, right? And like just all these, I just had this big, like, like so many intellectual and emotional thoughts. And I thought like, I think there's something 
that I could take from this experience and translate to people that, and I haven't read that book yet. I think I'm ready to write a book. Yeah. And now you had like the word for it or, or kind of the framework, yeah. you know, of rural gentrification where suddenly all of this past experience makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I love, you know, I've, I've read books like, like, um, I remember in grad school when I was reading this book by, um, James Brooks called Captives and Cousins about, um, the slave trade, uh, native slavery and stuff in the Southwest during like the colonial period. And it's just like a chaotic mess just makes no sense. But then he overlays kinship networks as like a, a framework. And suddenly all of these chaotic movements made sense. Like, cause you know, we had, I had the word for it or the mm-hmm. kind of a, a theory to make sense of it. So yeah. well, let's talk about rural gentrification because I think it is a concept that, um, many Westerners may not know that term Mm -hmm. but once we describe it um in my introduction i I noted that i think everyone in the west even if they live in a suburban or urban area not the rural west some of this will resonate because Mm -hmm. this is there are like phenomenons all across the west wherever people are Um, we've dealt with rural gentrification in a handful of episodes already and most prominently uh we spoke with justin farrell about his book billionaire wilderness about jackson (laughs) (laughs) So longtime listeners will be familiar with it from that. And I think it's come up in some other ways. Um, oddly, I did most of my reading of your book uh, a few weeks, a couple weeks ago on the beach. I know we joke as academics about how our books are not beach reading, um, but uh, my, my in-laws are, for the year, they're living on the North Shore of Oahu, working at the Polynesian Cultural Center. So we had a free place to crash. So we went there for Christmas. And... I was like, this is very strange beach reading. But what, well, the reason I bring this up is as we were driving around and uh, looking um, how pe- how people were living. Um, have you been to the North Shore of Oahu? Mm-hmm. It's very rural with the exception of kind of a couple towns. And uh, we were going through like the Zillow listings of what these small houses and almost all the houses seem to be subdivided into multiple units looking at what they were selling for and it was unbelievable the the, the cost of housing and as we talked uh with some um, locals um we, we heard about how hard it was for them to afford housing we saw multiple signs and yards uh, and bumper stickers expressing resistance to development mm-hmm. um and I wasn't expecting to find rural gentrification debates and struggles playing out on my Christmas vacation in Hawaii as I'm reading your book. And as we were driving, I'm like, oh, my, it, it's here, too, right? Um, in a tropical paradise with beaches, uh, as opposed to a beach in Dover, Idaho. Mm-hmm. But so much of it, I think, was, it's the, it was the exact same dynamics. We, Jackson Hole, Moab, you know, Aspen, Colorado, all these places where locals are getting priced out. Um, in Hawaii, I also noticed an overlap, which I wanted to kind of, or maybe we could pause there. Um, when you look at this Dover story, are there things that are, you think, unique to the Dover story that don't play out the same way in other places? Um, or conversely, are, are there specific commonalities that you think are significant that we wouldn't expect, you know, between say North Shore of Oahu or Moab with Dover? Yeah, I think, so I think one of the things that 
the reason, and I, um, the reason I thought Dover was a super interesting case study, and I think one of the things that makes it somewhat unique, well, there's is that the city of Dover um, was under a boil order for six years. They didn't have clean drinking water for six years, which I talk a lot about in the book. But because of that, they had to incorporate their community. So they had been an unincorporated community before that, which a lot of lot of rural places, this is one of their struggles, right? Is that it's not clear what jurisdiction they're in, right? You have to work with your county commissioner and the, around zoning issues. The city of Dover had incorporated. So the people of Dover had to incorporate to be able to get grants for low-income communities to rebuild their water system. So that made Dover unique in the sense that the local city council had control over the zoning, theoretically had control over the zoning of that mill plot. They could have kept it as um, agricultural. And so for me, it was like, well, why would these, I knew the city council was made up almost entirely of working class people. Right? Why would they rezone their community? So to me, that was a fascinating, I'm a sociologist, we start with research questions. That was my research question. That made it unique. Um, because you thought that the local working class people that were now in the city council would... Resist development. Would resist development. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I, so I, that I stuck mean, out to you as strange. Like there's something weird here. Yeah, it stuck out to me as strange. And people had all sorts of just those stories about, right? Like, oh, we bought them off. Like, you know, it's like typical. I don't know if that's typical everywhere, but it's very typical in North Idaho, right? There must be corruption. I'm like, maybe there is. Oh, this is fascinating. I want to answer that question. So I think that is... That actually the people of Dover had more control over their community and what happened to it than most people have because of the way it was um, that was incorporated. That land was in city limits and those city limits were decided theoretically. Um, that's not, it turns out like you can read the book and find out. <laughs> um, that's not what happened, right? The city council was forced to rezone because of, because of a court decision, but that made it unique. I think, I think one of the things that is universal, and this is the thing I was I struggle with just in general, even with the concept of rural gentrification is these are all just ways of explaining class inequality, right? Gentrification is just a way of saying like, yet again, working class and poor people and middle-class people get host. And so sometimes I get, sometimes I wonder if this term um, obscures those class dynamics in a way that I don't think the book does. I try, I'm pretty, I'm pretty overt about the class dynamics that I see happening um, in there. But I, um, and so I think that that's a universal story. And I think that's what we see playing out all over the place. Um, I think it's interesting in North Idaho, which is exceptionally white to try and um, the, the racial politics, it's like, I, the, I, I try and incorporate um, racial politics into the book and, you know, white supremacy into the book because like, North Idaho literally <laughs> nations, right? So it has to be part of the story, story of the Kalispell people, the story of the Chinese workers who built the railroad. Um, but it's a pretty white story of what happened in Dover. And I think in some ways that makes the class politics more clear. But yeah, I think it's a bit, yeah. So I, I was going to ask about kind of the regional, beyond this being a very white story, I was curious about the regional presence of white nationalists Christian nationalists, anti-government secessionists, and all kinds of over other overlapping groups uh, in Northern Idaho and in Northeast Washington. Um, and I'm curious if you could give us some commentary, on if there's any unique interplay between those groups and this conflict between you know, old residents, new residents, 
what is this small town going to become? So how do these very extreme groups in the in the area play into that? You know, it's interesting that you asked that question because I don't talk about it much in the book. And I did a I did a book talk not that long ago, and somebody from Sandpoint was in the in the audience, and it was kind of a national audience. And somebody asked that question, and I was like, you know, it just doesn't play out in Dover that much. And she was like, I think you're right. And I it, so it is sort of fascinating that. So North Idaho has, when I was in high school in North Idaho, the Aryan nations were active in Hayden, which was about, I don't know, 30 miles to the south. They marched down the streets of Sandpoint. They put sorts of all sorts of nasty flyers in our mailboxes and they would show up at our high school when we would get on the bus and hand out pamphlets called the Holohoax about how the Holocaust hadn't happened. So oh boy. I am not going to downplay the importance of white supremacy to um, North Idaho sort of culture. Right now we have the, probably the most prominent issue is the American readout, which is sort of um, a group who believe that you need to have defensible space. So they're buying up lots and lots of property and certainly increasing the property value of North Idaho. Tons and tons of retired cops from um, Long Beach, California. So like, it's like a specific kind of white flight, right? It's retired guys with big pensions moving. So all sorts of dynamics playing out. Interestingly in Dover though, and I don't know if it's mostly because they're all second homeowners, primarily I think it's 80, 70, 80% second homeowners. So, um, or maybe it's a selection bias in terms of the people I interviewed or who were willing to be interviewed. But for the most part, the people I interviewed were much more progressive. Um, and actually Sandpoint is, and a lot of this is true of a lot of like very small, like sort of those mid-time size, I say mid-size is 8,000 people. But to me, I'm like, Missoula's a city, Sandpoint's a town, um, much more left-leaning than the community as a whole. So, I mean, in, in those ways, I don't think those dynamics play out exactly in the community. Although as a social scientist, uh, people are drawn to places for particular reasons, right? When you talk about like the safety or the beauty, those are, those are terms that have a racial undertone. They have to um, in, our, in our world. So, you know, I don't think they explicitly play out in Dover. Um, I don't think some of those Christian national movements are explicitly playing out in this particular development. Um, primarily, I think it was largely marketed about amenity migration, right? All the, it was about boating and skiing that draws in a particular kind of crowd. Um, there are realtors who are just focused on like showing you how much defensible space, like how you can have the high vantage point to shoot your neighbors when they come for your like canned goods. I don't know. So that was, <laughs> those are a different crowd. They are certainly up there. Lots of them trip to Walmart is like a really an experience for a social scientist in North Idaho. Um, yeah. But the dynamics in Dover, I think are a little bit different. Hmm. In Hawaii, I, I noticed a lot of overlap between anti-development sentiments and indigenous Hawaiian independence movement, mm -hmm. like cars that would have one bumper sticker often had the, you know, the other or yards. Um, as, as you noted, Dover sits on homelands of the Kalispell peoples, but also Okanagans and Coeur d'Alene's. Um, the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation isn't too far south, right? No, we're of, what, like maybe, I'm trying to think, I just drove to my own house this weekend, like 90 minutes south maybe. Yeah. Um, do the, so the white nationalists maybe have, you know, didn't have much in this story. Uh, do regional native peoples, um, and maybe not just in Dover, but kind of in Northern Idaho, does, is gentrification impacting them in unique ways? 
Well, that's a great question. And here uh, we're talking about all kinds of things that are not in the book. I apologize. No, I, and um. I appreciate that. <laughs> I already know what happened in the book. I think these are super fascinating questions. You know, I'm, so I grew up in Montana and I thought had a pretty decent um, indigenous history. And then I moved to Idaho when I was in high school. And we just didn't talk about indigenous history, indigenous people, the tribes, nothing. And I, um, my department hope has the American Indian studies program in it. And I've been talking with my colleagues now for like, a, you know, 10 years, 15 years. Well, in the Montana state constitution, they're required, schools are required to talk about indigenous history. And that is not true in Idaho. Um, and so I don't know if it's that, but my experience growing up was that indigenous people were completely invisible in a way that they were not in Montana, right? Then schools had tribes come in and dance. Some of my classmates were um, Native American. My nieces and nephews are Native American. Um, and Idaho is just, and you know, it's interesting, like the Kalispell reservation is in, so most of the Kalispell people ended up on a reservation either in Washington or Montana. So the Flathead Reservation and the Kalispell Reservation. Um, the the Coeur d'Alene and the Nez Perce tribes are very like prominent and well-known in North Idaho, I think, but really have to fight to be seen and heard. Um, I'm sure that they are dealing with some issues of gentrification, probably the Coeur d'Alene more than the Nez Perce. But, you know, the, the main reservation town is, oh, I don't know, maybe like an hour north of where I'm at and where I work. And it's very, you know, very poor. Yeah. And so, and that county is very poor. There's a little town, you know, so I don't know how to answer that question exactly. <laughs> um, the Kootenai tribe, the, the Kootenai reservation is about an 45 minutes north of Sandpoint but it's only two acres. It's just people, oh, should, small. Yeah. people should look at that story. Like they held, they wanted a reservation in like the seventies or they wanted to be recognized as a tribe in like the seventies. And they went to war with the U S government over these two acres, which I didn't know that story until I started teaching in Idaho. And I was like, I got to learn some interesting facts. Or I was like, how did I not know this? This is 40, these people like, this is amazing. Um, and so I think, you know, we talk about the, some of the concepts in the book, like the booming and the bypass West. I think for the most part, reservations are extraordinarily bypassed, mm -hmm. um, very poor, no, very little like job infrastructure, but also doing some of the most important environmental work in our state without a doubt. Well, another um, kind of indigenous related question uh, we see in other places in the West, be it during the, the settler era or later on, as non-native peoples are trying to assert their identity in the place or to really not justify, but to try to read themselves into the landscape and that they belong mm -hmm. there. Some of them do kind of indigenize themselves in, in certain ways but in, in how they talk about themselves and the relationships with the land. Um, but you're saying that growing up, the, indigenous things just, they were, they were mostly absent from public discourse. Is that still the case? Is some of these say old timers are trying to defend themselves or fight the fight against development? Have they in any ways tried to read themselves onto the landscape in unique ways? That's a great question. I mean, that's not something I looked for or coded for in my interviews, but it would be interesting to go back and think about that. Um, I mean, I think people like to talk about their, in the sense that people talk about their connection to place and their ties to the land, um, how many generations they've been in a place. 
those kind of things. Yeah. Or they feel themselves, um, I'm an Idaho native, you know, or yeah. we, I hear people say, you know, I'm a Utah native and that therefore gives them some kind of authority over. Yeah, no, things. absolutely. Um, do that. Yeah. Well, let's, maybe we should explain a little bit of the sociology here about rural gentrification. One thing that I really, uh, was really eye-opening to me is how you root this all to um, capitalism and which you're not familiar with. I know I've studied the West and boom bust cycles and so forth, but you walk us through what sociologists call spatial fix in these three stages um, of how capitalist systems uh, create spaces, uh, destroy them, and then sometimes rebuild or refashion them into new kinds of spaces. Can you kind of walk us through these three phases and explain what spatial fix is and how rural gentrification kind of plays into that in the most layman's of terms possible? Well, that'll be easy for me because I do feel like, I think it's a, it's a concept from geography. And I was mostly, had finished all the research from the book when I was writing a different article about a different topic and somebody recommended that I, a reviewer recommended that I look at the spatial fix for that article. And I was like, oh, Finally, all the data from the book kind of came together. So um, the way I interpret the spatial fix, so it's a theory by David Harvey. And the way I interpret it is that, yeah, you can think of it as kind of a three-step process. We create spaces for capitalism. So we can think about the dispossessing indigenous people from the land in order to create law um, lumber mills as like this creating a space for capitalism, right? Like capitalism doesn't just exist. It's not natural. And I think that's one of the things that one of the interventions I hope the book makes, right. To, to look at this world around us and to say like, Oh, we made decisions. Maybe we didn't have a lot of agency in those decisions, but decisions were made. And that's why our world looks the way it looks right. To think about that human touch and how that impacts things. So we created a space for capitalism and that was primarily done through at least in North Idaho through the railroads and sort of government policies towards the railroads and how much land was taken away and um, the US government's relationship with indigenous people. Indigenous is a very generous word, right? Um, is it Great Northern or Northern Pacific? What goes through? Uh, it was the Northern Pacific okay. and the Spokane International. Like Sandpoint's called the funnel. So there's all these different, because of the way um, it's got this giant lake and the way the continental divide is, it's right on the Clark Fork River. Anyway, there's three different railroads that come together, right? In Sandpoint, it's a big, it's pretty cool. Um, I'm a huge railroad buff myself. <laughs> so, um, right. So we create this space for capitalism in like 1900. And well, I shouldn't say we, right? So um, the, the railroad barons, Weyerhaeuser is one of the major players in this. Um, and Hill, who runs the Great Northern Railroad, is like the neighbor to Warehouser, right? So you can see these like tycoons, the same way we have tycoons today, or these big businesses um, capitalizing off of what happens to indigenous people and building the space for capitalism. And through that building, um, we sort of get a, a, a rising middle class, white middle class in North Idaho. And then we have these bust cycles or this. Um, this destruction, right? And in North Idaho, or what I thought was super fascinating about Dover, but I think most communities have stories like this when you start looking. And I, this is one of the things I hope people will do, researchers will start doing, is like looking for this destruction that is often quite, I think, intentional, right? So in Dover, the lumber mill had created, built their water system. 
right? To entice people to come and work, right? They need people's labor. People need water. So they built a water system. They maintained that water system until they sold the mill. And when they sold the mill, the new owners told the people of Dover that their water was incidental to the purchase. So these people didn't have clean water to drink for six years. They had a sewer system that was red tagged. They had bridges that were collapsing because the lumber, the logging trucks weren't going over them anymore, right? And so here's this community that is in crisis. And it's during this moment of crisis that the developers are able to come in and pressure them to rezone the land, right? So that crisis created opportunity which we see all once I, I think this is a really important concept for people to understand like crisis as we think about like, in, you know, the climate change, these crises create opportunity for people with capital to then reinvest it into something new and exploit um, people in a different way. Right. So in the book, I argue that um, it's one of my favorite lines from the book was that people who used to clear timber are now clearing tables at the restaurant in Dover and the tipped wage in Idaho is three thirty-five an hour. Yeah, and and how much have housing costs gone up in the last ten years? Oh, I mean, it's yeah, a right. house that was probably a hundred thousand dollars is now six hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, this is one thing I found really fascinating: how you frame all of these stages as not really ever concerned about enriching that local community, right? When the railroads and the lumber mills set up, they they weren't there to enrich the area of Dover, Idaho. They were there to enrich their stockholders, right? Yeah. And I got that, but I never thought about rural gentrification and uh, kind of like, like suburban development with these developers in those same ways. But th those processes are also directed by outsiders. Mm -hmm. who are interested in the profits not of or in the the well-being not of the local community but of their pocketbooks or their investors so at all stages of these these this capitalist development it's never the community running the show it seems it's it's always these outside interests yeah and that it's always i think this is what makes me a good sociologist if i can say that it's it's that um being able to take I think a good sociologist is an alien, right? You come down and you look at things and you think, well, why are they this way? And that was one of those kind of things I thought, realized when I was writing the book or while I was doing this research, that seems so obvious, but it has been one of the things that people have commented the most on like, oh yeah, this was never designed to support a community. And it was kind of one of those aha moments for me to like, oh, this is why it looks like this. This is why it's so frustrating. And it's, I've been, in fact, I just got an email this morning from somebody that's like, I'm buying these books for the city council in my community. And um, I just went out for a beer with a guy up in Sandpoint who's a city councilor who, who loved my book. And, um, you know, one of the things I keep telling people is like, why, why do we let developers tell us how our communities are going to look? Why don't we have focus groups with all the waiters in town? or servers in town and ask them like, well, what do you, what kind of housing do you want to live in? What can you afford? What should we be building as our communities are growing? You know, how do we grow? And I think, you know, I, I think it's important to be thoughtful about how we talk about growth because it's really easy to like become, you know, not in my backyard or you, you study borderlands, right? What's the difference between saying we need to build a wall on the border and build a wall on the long bridge so people can't enjoy beautiful North Idaho. 
Right? Like where, I think those are important questions. And I don't think the book grapples with them very well. A teaching role social last term, we grappled with them a lot in my class. Um, I don't think this is, a, people move, right? And people are going to move all over the place. And I think that's part of the human experience, or at least the American experience contemporarily. But um, deciding what the rules are around that has been decided by one group of people for another group of people. And I think it's time to rethink that. Are locals aware of, of this strange dynamic? I could imagine former lumber mill workers um, looking back, you know, towards the good old days when the mill was providing them jobs and right, like water and a, a functioning sewer system and all these things. And I could imagine them kind of saying, oh, well, the lumber mill was for us, whereas these new developers are not. But the lumber mill used them as employees, but the purpose of the lumber mill was not them and their prosperity. Right. So do locals see this disconnect or do they kind of view the lumber mill era as like, oh, they, the industry used to be for us and support us. And absolutely. now this new development industry is against us. That's absolutely how they, I mean that, that, yeah, I would say like, I have direct quotes almost like that, you know, and they still have um, reunions for workers, you know, the workers get together and have like reunions and things. It's absolutely how they see it. And I think that's one of the things I tried to do in the book was like talk about the history or the 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 politics and trying to I mean I think one of the things that's really important to understand with rural gentrification is that rural communities exist within global markets. Right. And so it's easy to think like what is happening in your rural community is a result of these interventions you're making at the local level, but they are the result of global economic forces. And that seemed to be a huge disconnect around the lumber mill, right? It's like, we've got trees, we're not cutting them. It's the environmentalists, right? <laughs> it's just very local thinking. Yeah. And it's not to say the mill didn't, it did provide them jobs. It did provide mm -hmm. them all kinds of stability. So, I mean, it was a better setup than being unemployed, but the, this, this disconnect between that and like the broader world that's maybe actually driving those forces. That's well, interesting. I think one of the important things too, for me, that that I argued in the book was that, that the mill provided good jobs for them because workers fought for those. So there were the timber wars of 1918 um, where Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was in Sandpoint, like, you know, the IWW, the Wobblies were in Sandpoint. They were, just, you know, that was all happening in Dover. And so there were a huge labor movement in North Idaho. This was like a hotbed of labor activism um, between the mills and the mines. And I highly recommend The Cold Millions, which is Jess Walter's novel about the history of Spokane. It's, which I thought, read right after I wrote my book. I was like, this is amazing, right? But people fought for those rights. And they weren't just handed to the mill workers. So most of the mill workers arrived as, um, a lot of them were Dust Bowl refugees. So they were Okies. And, um, uh, immigrants from Scandinavia, right, who are working the mills. And the working conditions in those mills or in the in the lumber camps were abysmal. People had to bring their own straw for their beds. They were filled with lice. There was no running water, right? To, to get those rights, people had to work hard. And the lumber mill responded through mechanization, right? Labor is expensive, so you mechanize. And that's how people 
you know, it's not, that's why when I started this rightly, they unionized the mill in 1988 and then they closed it six months later. Mm -hmm. I think this also highlights another theme that you, you've already kind of mentioned, but you, 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 pull out throughout the book of uh, the the human factor, which is what you kind of already mentioned a little bit ago, that um, rural gentrification doesn't just happen, right? The mill didn't just pop up and happen, or the workers didn't just suddenly have better working conditions, right? It was because, you know, they fought for it. Or uh, the current development, rural gentrification doesn't just happen. There are people making decisions, having debates. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would assume it might be hard for maybe for insiders and outsiders to remember that. So I think that is an important intervention that your book does make, that it forces us to say, oh, these aren't just um, unavoidable processes that were just naturally going to happen, right? People made decisions um, Mm -hmm. for them to happen or not. Um, I was struck that the locals seem to be aware. I mean, so you you talk about how you go to the city archives and you want to, see the council minutes of when some of these zoning decisions were made or listen to the audio tapes of those meetings. And there's nothing there. It's just empty. They have the files, but there's nothing in the files, which, I mean, if we want to get into conspiracy theories about corruption and so forth, um, but it seems to me that perhaps they were aware from day one that this was going to be controversial and is that why they're missing? Is that the kind of, is that the running conspiracy theory? I mean, there are office? no, I, I mean, I think I'm, so I was the one who discovered, so some of the minutes, um, some of the really important minutes, or I thought they were important, right? So I created this pretty intensive timeline of events from newspaper articles that I was able to pull. And so I, I knew when city council meetings had happened and what those important minutes were when things had been resolved. So they weren't all missing, but there were a couple files that to me felt pretty critical that I couldn't find. And then, um, yeah, so I was gonna listen to the tapes and the city council or the city clerk brought in the box of tapes and there are 26 tapes in the box. So there were physical tapes? Yeah, there were physical tapes. So she brought in the tapes and like, I tried to play them right. And like, it's been a while since I used a tape player. Like maybe I'm just not doing this right. And she's coming in and trying to mess with them. And it's like not playing. So I'm like, okay, well maybe it's another one. It's like, oh, maybe it's a tape player. So she brings in a different box of tapes and we're a totally different thing. And we put one of them in and they play fine. So I sat in all 26 tapes were blank. Yeah. I have my, I have, I wrote one draft of the book where, and I was like, this is too much of a Nancy Drew novel. <laughs> and I'm a social scientist. And so I need to step back and try to understand the structural forces. But oh yeah, I have theories. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, maybe we don't need to air those. I don't want to, no. <laughs> I don't want to make en- more enemies for you than you already have. <laughs> Um, but, but what's interesting is this does, you know, local residents as there's this huge new, um, high price development being put in, they're being priced out of their, you know, where they've lived for maybe generations. And it's easy for them to have all kind of the bad guy focus on the developer. Oh, it's that darn developer. Right. Um, which looks right past the the local policymakers and state policymakers, right. Mm-hmm. Who were making the development possible. But then that's shining light on other locals, which makes things, you know, far more uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what's fascinating to me about Dover and this in Idaho was very like aggressive property, personal property rights. But to see those come up against these ideas of sort of common space, 
in the commons and that people see as personal or private or public lands, right? Um, and I, I think this is a huge misstep for people running for office, frankly, in Idaho to not have a better understanding of how to discuss um, public spaces as common goods and to try and unite people around certain ideas. That were very and that's what was fascinating is that they, they're, they're common spaces the uh, along the shoreline that for a hundred years they had kind of viewed as like an open community space mm -hmm. was not public land. No. Right? It was private land owned by the, uh, by the no. mill. Um, so when it transfers, there's this kind of rude awakening that, oh, that's not common space. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's privately owned. Uh, another, I mean, I have, I have so many, too many questions to go through. This is impossible. Um, t talk to us about, the developers marketing and you know this is a western studies podcast so we're interested about how people are thinking about the west and also how they are marketing the west what ideas they're projecting on landscapes um, and specifically what kind of like stereotypical western ideas or imageries they're projecting on the landscape so how do developers market um this development there uh, along the lake in dover Oh, and we should maybe also note to readers that you do use pseudonyms, not just for people, but for locations as well. Because yeah. for a second, I was like, wait, Mill Lake? The Mill Lake development? And I got confused for a, a second. I was like, oh, no, wait, no. It, that's just yeah. the... That's the pseudonym. That's the I pseudonym. mean, everyone in North <laughs> Idaho knows what it is, and everyone yeah. gives me crap about using a pseudonym, <laughs> but oh, well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so how uh, do they do this marketing? What's Western about how they market the development? for Because pe people are specifically seeking... We call these amenity economies or an amenity migrants. That why are they moving to northern Idaho? Because there's certain outdoor recreational amenities or things that they're looking for, right? Yeah, I mean, they're certainly marketing it as like this outdoor space. And I thought one of the, I don't remember whose book I read, but the idea that um, that being able to convince people that space is finite, that wilderness is finite, then makes it more desirable. It makes it worth more, right? And so. Anyway, so they're marketing it primarily through like the use of land and how bodies or bodies use land. So lots of images around boats and skiing, really active, being able to have this active outdoor lifestyle with open spaces. Um, and then just sort of this iconic sort of bungalows by the lake and craftsman style homes and white picket fences. I don't know. It's interesting because I think in certain places like Montana and Colorado, you get like this cowboy aesthetic, right? That everyone wants to like have antler chandeliers, which not my, not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Montana. I'm like, Oh, if someone's got an antler, they're not going to be, they're never going to tip. Well, like just get out of the house. <laughs> um, but it's not that aesthetic. It's very much, um, but it's not, but it's interesting. Like they're not really pulling from the lumber mill aesthetic. It's all about outdoor spaces and kind of this relationship to nature where nature offers you the ability to do these things that make you outdoorsy, right? And then all the kind of trappings that come along with that, the vests and the Patagonia and the paddle boards and the, you know, pontoon boats, kayaks, bikes, you know, it's just, it was amazing to me, like the amount of outdoor equipment that people were kind of accumulating 
in their short time, just having moved to North Idaho, like I always bought bikes. We're going to start biking again in our retirement. So, but these are kind of, so they're not invoking like old West imagery as a way to attract people. But all of these things you're talking about are very much some of the most iconic things of the new West, right? Right. They're a new West. Mm -hmm. Recreation. So they're Mm -hmm. really doubling down on that. It's interesting. I'm, I have an anthology coming out, um, hopefully uh, later this year, uh, on the 21st century West. And one of the articles, one of the chapters in there by Jen Dunn, who uh, was a, a PhD student at Montana State, was writing about Libby, Montana. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the kind of the environmental catastrophe, post-mining uh, pollution that they're facing and the city is at this weird crossroads where they're trying to decide because it was also designated as a superfund site and so they're trying to decide well the superfund thing makes us look like uh, an environmental wasteland and that's not going to be good for our community or the surrounding region so how do we remarket ourselves and so they're debating well do we do kind of like heritage um tourism right like you know kitschy you know, saloon door shops, you know, along mm-hmm. the, the main street. And, and there's lots of communities who've done, who've turned to this as their way to answer the bust or mm-hmm. to answer, you know, economic downturns in the rural West. Well, let's capitalize on kind of our West, our iconic old West roots. Yeah. And that'll bring in tourists or probably more tourists than permanent residents. Maybe that's the key difference here. Um, the Dover doesn't go that route. Because um, are they not as necessarily interested in bringing in seasonal tourists or just people to stop by and buy some tchotchkes like they were this was a this was about development like yeah there are no there is essentially and i was realizing because i was working with my students and teaching part of the book i realized like this is a failing of the book that i didn't probably double down enough on like there are very very few things in dover other than houses and a beach and a marina there's a restaurant and but it's quite small and like a exercise club. I don't know what you call those, a workout place. Um, other than that, there's not really any public spaces or like shops or things like that. There is no downtown Dover, right? It's all housing. So why hasn't the local, so why, why hasn't that been part of the old timers, um, p- potential strategies? Is it just because they didn't have, you said that economic downturns produce opportunities for people with capital. Mm-hmm. to come in and exploit new situations. No is that the problem? They just don't have the capital to to think about, well, maybe we can reinvent Dover as kind of like, yeah, like a, a, a heritage tourism site or something where people come to remember, you know, the lumber mill days or things like that. Well, I think this is an interesting question because it kind of it brings us back kind of full circle to like, well, what what are the hallmarks of rural gentrification? Like, so it's not just social class, right? There are some things specific about this. And one of the things I think is interesting about rural gentrification or the hallmark of rural gentrification is intergenerational displacement. So urban gentrification tends to displace entire communities. Rural gentrification, because people tended to own their own homes, means that people, as long as they stay in those homes, um, have affordable housing. But and you, property taxes are going to go up. Property but taxes are going up. They're not having to buy a new home at you know the 500% inflated price. Um, yeah. But that's so they have capital in their houses, but if they sell their houses, but they their kids can't and grandkids cannot stay in the community. So, you know, I don't think that these are people in their 80s by and large. Like they're not really, they're not looking to that point in their life to 
you know, reinvest and they don't have the capital to, to do that with. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the developers are like trying to, I think like maybe there was some talk about like trying to decide who's basically build a gas station coming into town. Um, but yeah, there's not much because in part because Sandpoint is two miles down the road, three miles down the road. So this community with a very developed downtown um, is right there. So, I mean, it really, this is sort of like a bedroom community for Sandpoint, which the people of Dover hate to admit and say, but that's largely what it is. And that's what it's become. Mm-hmm. That's what it was for a long time, but yeah. Huh. When I, li- I lived on the Great Plains for about a decade, and when I was out there, we were talking a lot about uh, the graying of the plains, right, mm-hmm. where younger generations were moving away from small towns to go to college, but not moving back because, you know, there wasn't jo- jobs or economic opportunities, mm-hmm. um, which I'm assuming is, you know, definitely also part of the case in Dover. But on top of that, which was not a case, say, in a small rural Nebraskan town, they, they didn't have the housing crisis of not being able to move back home even if they could find a job, but they can't even afford to find housing back home. So that's, that's unique here as well, which kind of uh, doubles the, the difficulty for, for that, that passing generation or people who yeah, grew and up I think there. It's, you know, I think the other thing that, and this has become quite apparent in the news, I think my book was just extraordinarily timely. I got really lucky. Um, but, you know, and we, people can't afford to work in the restaurants in Sandpoint anymore. Because housing is so expensive, the people are, you know, in Ketchum, Idaho, they built a tent city for their workers for the summer, right? Like, this is it's like turn of the century stuff that we seem to, you know, it's interesting, like when you're in the moment, people just kind of internalize it. But in Sandpoint, it's a huge crisis that they cannot find enough people to work. The Ski Mountain just built their own, um, like, uh, I want to say mill housing, but their own housing Company housing for the employees. Yeah, company housing for their employees. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so this does impact. I mean, I think that like, unfortunately, that's like tends to be how people will buy into these kind of arguments. It's like this does impact you. Half the restaurants in Sandpoint are closed because they cannot find workers. We Another chapter in this anthology I'm editing has a whole chapter about kind of like the migrant workers in the Colorado high country. Right. So the restaurant and many of them are um, Central American or Mexican American, sometimes uh, uh, you know, multi-generations, they've been in Colorado, but, you know, they're working the service industries in Aspen or Vail or Breckenridge, but they have to live an hour away mm-hmm. and then drive in every day over treacherous winter roads. Um, or, I mean, I think I told this to Justin Farrell when I had him on, but years ago I was driving through Jackson Hole and I hadn't had much experience there at the time. And we stopped at a subway or something. I don't remember where. Got some horrible sandwich and um, it struck me as I was aware of like how expensive this community was. I said, I said to my wife, where do these subway employees live? How do they afford to live here? And then I found out, well, they don't live there, right? They live, you know, 30 miles down the road or something. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is happening all over. Yeah. I mean, and I think California started, right. And I think that we should all be paying a lot of attention to how awful it is become there. Um, cause I think that's our fate unless yeah. we make some pretty radical interventions. And I think what's really fascinating about North Idaho, and I wish I, I, I'm like close to being able to unravel what's happening, but that it's so white in North Idaho. I mean, I grew up just thinking like 
And I think that's why class becomes so salient when everybody's white, like the people working in restaurants are white. Everybody is white um, that you don't. And I'm not sure if it's just the racial politics, like it is this, it's this dangerous and uncomfortable for people of color to be here. Um, that like why we don't see more like Hispanic immigrants and migrant workers in North Idaho. Um, but it, it's super fascinating to me. Hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm really excited about your work and unfortunately it's timely, right? It, it's, we want our, our books and our work to be relevant, but sometimes we're writing about topics where maybe, you know, we wish like, oh, too bad this is relevant. Um, yeah, the COVID era made it, I think, especially relevant. And everybody wants like, well, what do we do? And I don't have a lot of good answers, unfortunately. I mean, I think it, the scope of the problem is is really big. Yeah, well, and I think COVID just accelerated as we've seen so many people turning to remote work and realizing, that, oh, I don't have to live in a city. And there's been... I'm interested, I'll be interested to see in 10 years what, you know, sociologists, geographers, demographers uh, show about kind of this urban suburban exodus out to the rural West, which I assume is only going to accelerate these rural gentrification so. problems. I think so. But I wonder about, I mean, so I'm, yeah, I, I'm super curious about, I wish I had a crystal ball and could like decide what community to study. Cause like the town of Nebraska, the graying of that town, like maybe people will move back. Right. And maybe. And I, I wonder, like, maybe it will be good. Like gentrification, part of the problem for these communities is that it's mostly people who've retired who are returning. They're very uninvested, largely in the community. They don't care about the schools or many of those things because they're not in that period of their lives anymore, you know? And so like maybe gentrification can bring back like a, or not uh, this kind of like exodus can bring back a different class structure to rural communities. Not optimistic, but maybe like, Two percent of me thinks. Maybe yeah, maybe it'll happen. it'll balance some things out or create different dynamics for a more some kind of more balanced development. Yeah, balance. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we're, we're out of time. Um, do you want to give us a quick glimpse of what you're working at? What you're working on next? Yeah, right now I am. I have been working on uh, a big grant that I run on women in agriculture for the state of Idaho, and so just collecting lots of data. And I don't know what will become of that project, except for hopefully lots of trainings and opportunities for women farmers in our state um, to grow their enterprises for our communities. So that's, I'm working with Extension on some of those projects. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day. Uh, It's the very beginning of the new year. I know you have a new semester looming uh, as a lot of us do. So uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much, Professor Pilgrim. And uh, hopefully we, uh, we'll meet sometime at a conference somewhere. Yeah. It was nice to meet you. All right. Take care. Okay, bye. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll subscribe. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates, leave comments, and communicate with me. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We are an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understanding of the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream. We have an annual funding cycle with awards, grants, fellowships in categories that nearly anyone researching and working on the region from nearly any disciplinary approach or towards nearly any kind of final product can apply. 
Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson. That's Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brennan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, just about everything else, so you can direct praise or critique my way. I'm the author and editor of a number of books uh, and other studies on the West, Borderlands, Native Peoples, Genocide Studies, Religion, and the Environment. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or just about anything else, head to bwrensink.org. That's B-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K.org. Or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind.